So this evening is Wednesday. It is September 7th, 2011. Uh, I think our message this evening will probably be uh, called Discouraged by Jesus. Yeah, that's a strange title, huh? You won't forget it, though. Discouraged by Jesus. Go ahead and turn to Luke 9. You know, it, it's an interesting thing. I guess um, I've preached now in most of the cities in Israel, a bunch of cities in India, a bunch of cities in Germany, a bunch of cities in Mexico. I got a chance to preach in a lot of places. And you hear all kind of messages. Uh, one of the things that has been really a blessing in my life is not just to go speak places, but to hear what is being preached in other places. Uh, I found real pearls of wisdom from uh, sometimes even illiterate folks who God has touched mightily. And I'm convinced that our king reveals to the humble things that he will never reveal to the wise and learned. And uh, that is not an endorsement to be uneducated. Uh, nobody aspires to do that. The Bible tells us to study, to show ourselves approved. But it is an endorsement of a certain attitude, one that is always learning, never have arrived, one that is always a student. And before we get into this message in Luke, I just want to tell you, we're going to meet with our board. Um, we're going to meet with our board Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, because there are some things that we want their advice about. There are things we want their help about. And as I was in worship, I began to reflect on how we met all of those men. And I just, I want to give you a couple of their names to start with. Uh, some of you know Wade Sutherland. Uh, he's a pastor at a church in Austin. And Eric Hill, a pastor at a church in Dallas. And Justin Johnson, a pastor at a church in Baton Rouge. It occurred to me that my relationship with each one of these men did not begin by telling them how wonderful they were. Or that they were a champion. Or that God wanted them to be rich or anything of the sort, most of them go back to a moment where God brought us into sharp contention with each other over the seriousness of the gospel. And then as I began to reflect on that even more, and I just happened to be older than most of those guys, not by much, but a little bit, I realized I've done that with lots and lots and lots of people through the years. In some ways, you could think of me as a really contentious person. But those guys took that little bit of correction and they ran with it. And they ran so hard and so fast and so long that they've now outpaced all of the people that once poured into their lives. That's how Christianity is supposed to be. It is supposed to be a challenging word that challenged you to the point you took it seriously and then surpassed those who gave you the word. This is how one generation advances the gospel and what it takes them 40 years, 50 years, 60 years to learn, they give to somebody else in five or six years. And then the nature of the revelation is progressive. It keeps going. That's how Christianity is supposed to be. And I just want to encourage you as I give you a word tonight that might be kind of hard. When is it not, right? The real goal here is that like Charlie and Joe did with me, you said you learned something. They taught me. I was 18 years old. I didn't know even who to vote for yet. And today, I have something to teach them. That's how the kingdom is supposed to work. Barnabas is supposed to go get Saul, include him in his work. Saul works and works alongside Barnabas. And before long, the two men are both confident to work even in two different directions, and it's okay. I just wanted to tell you the reason we're sharing things with you here today is not because we see ourselves as teachers and you as students only. It's because our goal is to raise up peers that outpace us. That is our goal. Can you say amen to that? Amen. All right. Uh, honestly, the biggest problem in the first century with the leaders uh, where they liked their positions of authority so much they were willing to keep the people in the position they found them. Love what Greek calls oikotonome, edification, always leaves somebody better than you found them. That's why Jesus criticized people for laying heavy burdens upon someone's shoulders but doing nothing to alleviate them. When you have encountered the living God, at first it is a heavy burden. 
and it's a heavy burden because you see all that must change. But he always leaves you better than he found you. He shows you how to carry that burden. And before long, his word tells you, carry your own load. Amen. You know? Amen. So are y'all in uh, Luke 9? Yeah. yeah. Hey, on that note, Ryan, I'm proud of you. You're still here. Yeah, it's been eight, ten weeks. I went to go move Ryan. And uh, I looked around and said, Ryan, it's been several times we've moved you. Now, where are all your friends? What has the world done for you? Got all kind of friends, buddies, fraternal order of whatever. Where are they? Said, it's a little bitty church on the other side of Houston that keeps coming to help you. You think maybe God's trying to get your attention? Yeah. He said, yes, sir, I did. And I said, what are you going to do about it? He said, well, I'll be at church. I said, I'll believe it when I see it six weeks in a row. How about that? But I didn't talk to him again for the rest of the day. I want you to hear what Jesus does in the scripture. Uh, by the way, it's not, it's not even fair, I'm not even close to compare me with Jesus. That's not what I'm doing. I'm saying when Jesus moves through a person, it sometimes looks this way. Amen? Yeah. Not, not necessarily the 60 mile an hour haircut, silver suit, and brother, I, I love you. <laughs> you know, when you can't tell the difference between a pastor and a politician, something is wrong because the man of God stomped on toes. Uh, all right, are y'all in Luke 9? I better get into the Word before we get into trouble. Look at verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Sounds like lyrics to a song, huh? Wherever you go, I'll follow you, Lord. I mean, what a statement of faith. Wherever you go. I mean, he doesn't know where Jesus is going. And he says, wherever it is, I will follow you. What would be the answer by the average nominal Christian in the United States? Fantastic. Come to the front. Let's have a formulaic prayer. We'll put your USDA stamp Christian on your forehead and you're good to go. Right? Might quote Romans 10, 9 and 10 to him. What did Jesus do? Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. End of conversation. Does it look to you like Jesus was trying to build a megachurch? No. no. And I'm not against megachurches. I'm just curious if this looks like a recruitment setting. Did he stop and say, you know what, man? This will be like, I mean, don't you want to go to heaven? Don't you want to avoid hell? Please let me pray with you. Let me please lead you in a prayer. You don't hear anything like that, do you? In fact, you hear something baffling. Jesus actually is telling this guy, you say you'll follow me wherever I go? You're likely to end up homeless then. Isn't it? Isn't that, I mean, wouldn't that be the modern day equivalent? Isn't that what he's saying? Saying even animals have places to lodge. I don't. So you sure you want to follow me? And you don't get the impression that he has turned back and said, look, if you do, God will return it to you seven times over. He's a great investment program. Better than the 4% that you get in the stock market these days. None of those things. You know why? Because he's worth it. He's worth it. Jesus is worth overcoming opposition for. And the truth is, not only does the gospel tell you that you must deny yourself to follow him, you may be homeless if you follow him. How many people would get saved with that message? I'm just curious, in one of those churches, probably some will come to mind if I just say maybe 20,000 people, 40,000 people, 50,000 people. Jesus was a mini church pastor. I mean, he was. Think about it. Thousands followed, and whenever they did, what did he say? Hey, you want to eat my flesh and drink my blood? He scattered them at the cross. How many disciples were left? One. Bunch of loyal women. Praise God, girl power in the room. So many Marys, we have to call them uh, by their region just to be able to say who was there. Day of Pentecost. How many people in the room? 120. That was after 40 days of Jesus being resurrected, walking around Israel. Think about that. 
He appeared to more than 500 at one time, Paul said. But how many were in the room praying on the day of Pentecost? 120. Are we sure that we're aiming at the right thing, friends? I mean, I'll just be honest. I was excited when we had so many people in the house we couldn't meet there anymore. Felt like success, you know? Why? A whole bunch of people that made that move from the house to the first building we were in are not with us today. And it's fine if they're somewhere like maybe Gabe is or Kelsey is or Nick is where they're doing God's work. But how many of them are not working for Jesus at all? Which begs the question, did the crowd bring success then? Now, success has got to be measured in our obedience to Jesus. And maybe that's what he's getting at here. You say you'll follow me. Is it because I fed some people and you saw it? Is it because I healed some people and you saw it? Or is it because you're willing to be obedient even if you're homeless? Now, if this was said to us, we would quickly rationalize why Jesus would not want us homeless. You know, we'd go find a commentary that supported that point. <laughs> hey, look, well, uh, the commentary of Matthew Eric says... What Jesus was really getting at is on the one hand we have this, and on the other hand we... Is it really that hard to understand? He didn't stop and explain it. To this man, he said, you might be homeless if you follow me. Well, he wasn't the only man in, in this paragraph here. He said to another man, follow me. This time Jesus called, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Seems like a reasonable request. First, let me go bury my father. There are all kinds of teachings about this one. Anything that we can do to water down what Jesus actually says to the man. Now, the reality is in the first century, there were two burials. That's indisputable. If Nolan killed over, we would take Nolan. We would put him in a tomb if we could afford it. There'd be a rock slab towards the front of the tomb. We'd lay him out there, right? Wrap him in some spices so that we could stand the four or five day of close contact in the funeral. We'd go back. That was one burial. We'd go back. One year later, we would collect his bones because we're Jewish and we're very practical people. We'd put them in an ossuary box. We'd move them to the back of the catacomb to make room for the next family member that was going to be there. There were two burials. Maybe he was talking about let me go back and have my second burial. They'd give him a year to adjust to the idea of following Jesus. Give him a year to set his family in order. Listen to Jesus' response to this man. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. That's a seeker-sensitive message, isn't it? I mean, that's the kind of part that says, we don't want anybody to feel uncomfortable, do we? I mean, look, we want the gospel to be attractive to people, don't we? Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, this is great as long as it's a story about someone else in some other place, isn't it? But I've just buried my father. A lot of you were there. What's it been, two, three weeks? What if Jesus said... Eric, doesn't matter what people expect of you. Doesn't matter what you want to do. I'm telling you, do what I tell you to do. How many people would have received that well? Eric didn't come to his own father's funeral. We thought he was going to preach it, and he didn't even show up at it. What kind of son is that? The Bible says take care of your family. Could you hear it? Could you think it through? What is Jesus asking of this guy? Sounds a lot like he says, my needs, Mr. Follower, have to take precedence over your needs. What does our Christianity look like when we compare it to that? When we say, whatever our needs are, they are secondary to the needs of the kingdom. That'll make you think twice about the second plate, huh? And look at me, I like the second plate. That'll make, make you think twice about what we spend our money on, huh? What if we took Jesus seriously and our needs were actually secondary to the needs of the kingdom? Could we really have people starving around us? 
Could we really have people without food and clothes and shelter in the world? Hmm. These are questions that are worth thinking about, aren't they? I mean, we all sit in padded chairs, air-conditioned room, nicely well-lit room, had an easy place to park, not too far to walk. There are Christians that are meeting under total darkness, the cover of night. They're not on padded chairs. They're on dirt floors. The door opens, like ours does, always during worship, and you have a serious question on your mouth. Is it someone who wants to hurt us? And they still come. When I was in India, I met a woman, and she wanted to, she was in a prayer line, and uh, we, we prayed for a lot of people, and uh, she just didn't strike me as somebody who had a physical problem, but I didn't know, and uh, my Tamil's not very good. I, I know how to say Maida, speed bump, you know. <laughs> Learn how to say speed bump in every language you're in, because when you're driving and you're in a play, you, you find them. Topes in Spanish, not Topes. She came forward in the prayer line, and I asked the interpreter, you know, what's her need? There was a long conversation there. It made me kind of uncomfortable. I'm like, you know. Her husband was not a believer. He beat her every time she came to church. She was concerned about two things. One was she lied to him regularly, and she wasn't sure Jesus was okay with that. She used to tell him she was going to the marketplace when she was actually going to church. The second one was she knew he was going to beat her when, he went, when she went home. I thought, well, life is hard on new converts sometimes. Don't worry, honey, he'll come around. I didn't say that. I was just thinking. The interpreter said she's been coming here for five years. She's never missed a service. What happens when the kingdom's needs take precedence over your own needs. Every person in that room got healed that day. And it wasn't because of some great person faith. It was because there were people that took Jesus at his word. Why do our churches look the way they did? Why are they powerless, flesh-filled, program-entertained? Because we don't take Jesus at his word if it makes us uncomfortable. Isn't that a hard word? I'm sorry. It's been beating me up all week. Every time I go to Mexico, this happens, and it, it, it keeps happening. And Some would say, wait till it wears off. We're going to go to Mexico enough that it doesn't wear off, and also Romania and lots of other places. Because the kingdom is not an American enterprise, and the church is not a franchise that you put in every city to make everybody feel better about themselves. This is the place where you enlist the soldiers of God to go and do the kingdom's work. Jesus actually said in John 4, my food is to do the Father's work and complete the task. What a good feeling. Anybody in here ever done anything hard? Cody walked out of the valley in Anipala. That was, a, that was an accomplishment, wasn't it? Yeah. It was called the Valley of the Elephant, Anipala. It felt a little bit like an elephant was on our backs. We're fat out of shape, really pretty pathetic when compared to the local people, and we came to see them all get saved. Mm -hmm. There was only one who had the body of a bronze Adonis who walked out just fine. Michael, thank you. <laughs> the rest of us were hurting, but at the end of the trip, there was a sense of accomplishment. Because as pathetic as our trip was, we didn't stop. If there's anything that the church is missing, it is the maturity that comes from perseverance. Because we have favored comfort over obedience. To the first man, he said, you're going to be homeless if you follow me. To the second man, he said, my needs will always take precedence over your needs. Wow, and this, is, this was the call. <laughs> this, this was the invitation to the crowd. Not, don't you want to go to heaven? It's like going to Disney World, only better. <laughs> This was the call. How about the Apostle Paul's call? Come unto me, Saul Paulus of Tarsus, and I will show you how much you will suffer for me. How many people answer that call? But where would you be if he didn't? Wow. See, the kingdom is about men who took God's word 
so seriously that they were obedient to it to their own peril. Which one of the apostles was not martyred? Somebody said it. John. John was not martyred, but they tried to kill him three times. They just weren't any good at it. <laughs> Boiled him in oil. That didn't work. Starved him out on Patmos. That didn't work. The church of the living God is an anvil that wears out hammers, friends. The church is. I don't know what the institutions are that surround us sometimes. And there are good churches all over this land. But how many people would have answered this call? Well, maybe the third time Jesus got it right. Let's see that. Still another man said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. To the first man, he says, If you follow me, you're going to be homeless. To the second man, he says, my needs will always take priority over your needs because I'm the Lord and you are the disciple. To the third man, he basically, in a manner of speaking, says, if you're going to serve me, nothing ever comes before me. How many people get saved with those words? And yet, this is what Jesus preached. Do we need to write books about it? Do we need to argue about it? Do we need to get it out there for the world? The call of God that goes out says, your home will have to be in my presence because you may not have anything else. The call of God says, his priorities always take precedence over your priorities. The call of God says, nothing ever comes before Jesus. But the Western Christian says, let rationality enter into this. And we will decide what is a balanced approach, a measured response. We will find a way to make Jesus just a little more palatable. Doesn't it? Yeah. Come on, guys. I'm right there with you. I see some of you fighting off tears. You need to know. Matt and I talked about whether or not we could even preach this message today over lunch. The response then is... Well, Okay, what do we do? You want me to go sell my house, Eric? What are you saying? Do I abstain from all my family's funerals? Do I refuse to, to, to talk to my family? Well, what is it that you want? We want a reckless abandonment of yourself. We want total, all-consuming devotion to anything that the Lord would tell you and an expectancy that he would. And I'm going to tell you a secret. Not only is he worthy of it, he won't accept anybody who doesn't do it. So we've all bought into a lie. We bought into the lie that says if we are nice people and pay most of our taxes yeah. <clears throat> and don't hate anybody that anyone else knows about and say that Jesus is our Lord, that we're saved. Never mind the fact that when you say he's Lord, you don't do what he actually tells you to do. So we make up for ourselves a moral code. Well, Christians don't do this, this, and this, and this, and this. And we begin to define ourselves by all the things that we don't do. See, I'm holy because I don't do this. And I'm holy because I don't do this. And I'm holy because I don't do this. When in reality, holiness is doing whatever he's told you to do. So if we couldn't define our Christianity by saying, well, I don't do this, and you were left only with the definition of what you do that shows a reckless abandonment of self and a devotion to Jesus, how long would that list be? This would be the measure of Christians. So why are all the miracles in other places? I, we, just, we just laid our finger on it. What did it cost us to be here tonight? Is anybody going to get beaten up for being here? Is anybody going to die for being here? We give our 10% and think we did great. Not everybody even does that. He wants it all. He wants it all. And not with the promise that he's going to give you back seven times over. We seek first the kingdom with an abandonment of ourselves. 
and come hell or high water, at least we're in him. That's what Christianity is. To the extent that our little fellowship begins to believe that and do that, you won't wait for a pastor to do some great thing. You won't call the elders and say, oh, the elders could. Surely they could. You will begin to believe that God can do it through you. You know why? He will have tested your metal over and over and over. Every time you didn't want to speak to somebody at the post office, you will hear that word and it's no longer optional. Every time you did not want to give to something, you will hear that word and it's no longer optional. You don't descend into the internal debate and the conflict over all the reasons that God would never tell you to do that because we've already seen He's willing to make you homeless. He's willing to make you desert your family. He's willing to tell you that no priority of yours is important to Him. That's a completely different kind of Christianity, isn't it? And you wonder why 12 little Jewish boys took over the world? They took Him that seriously. Now we need to ask, why have we not taken over Sugarland? Maybe we haven't taken him that seriously. That's the hard part of the message. When I say we, I don't mean you. I mean we. I told Matthew today, we leave Mexico. I think when we added it all up, we spent like 1200 bucks in Mexico. I started looking at that. That's just over 10% of what our church budget is on a monthly basis. It doesn't scratch the surface. It feels like it hurts to me, but that's because I don't know what hurt is yet. It's because I don't really know what sacrifice is yet. All I really know is how to give out of the plenty that he's given me. I was reflecting on Mario Salinas. This is a missionary we support. A missionary who got born again out of our ministry and is in ministry today because we prophesied to them and they're out running us. When we prophesied to Mario, he'd been fasting two weeks. No, I don't mean like the pansy Muslims fast where they eat at night and not during the day. And I don't mean like your friends who lie to you about their fast do, where they're, you know, drinking protein shakes while they fast. He fasted, right? Only water. Now, I have done that. Done it longer than that. But there's a real difference there was a time I fasted 23 days. And I'm proud of that, right? Oh, yeah, hunger strike. You know what I knew would happen on the 24th day? Never was there a question in my mind on the 24th day that I would eat. I, I actually spent the last five or six days thinking about what I was going to eat on that day. <laughs> Mario didn't know when he was going to eat. But he fasted because the Lord told him to. And when the Lord said to do something, it was not optional. So what can God do with something like that? Well, a man who lives on dirt floors and has five children and a wife and almost no education spent most of his life in jail. What can the Lord do with a man like that? Well, Mario spends every Thursday evening now at the hospitals in Matamoros feeding the people in the hospitals who can't get in the ones who are outside on the street sleeping, waiting for a bed. He spends Wednesday evenings going to nursing homes. Spends Friday evening in church. You know, what, is, what can God do with a man like that? The other day with just four or five American friends, Mario preached to a crowd of 200 there, all of his peers. He boldly stood up and proclaimed about the goodness of God. What can God do with a man who takes him at his word? Well, the better question would be, what can't God do? See, if you're not in the way, if you don't reason out everything that he tells us to do, if you don't descend into debate that is an excuse for sin, what could he not accomplish? He's not limited by your resources. Five loaves and two fishes. How many basketfuls did they have left over? Twelve. He's not limited by your resources. He's not limited by the laws of nature. Didn't he walk on water? Rebuke storms? He's not limited by anything except us. That is a scary thought, isn't it? I often sit back and I think, man, I've been preaching a long time, and I, I have opportunities at times to preach to very large crowds. I don't enjoy it as much as I do this. 
And there's a reason I don't. Most of the time, when there's very large crowds, they're there because they're entertained there. I've learned through the years that the people that you want to surround yourself with are the ones that if we have to meet in the parking lot while it's raining, you'll meet there because you have found the words of life and you don't want anything else. Christians in a foxhole. That's what we're looking for. People who understand the times and no longer is obedience optional. Turn with me to Matthew 13. You should be happy we're getting a New Testament word tonight, right? Yeah. Amen. I go months. Just in the Older Testament. Matthew 13. Are y'all in Matthew 13? Yes. Okay. I'm going to read you something out of Mark, I'm sorry, out of Luke that I should have read while we were there because Jesus just said it too good for me not to say it. So while you're in Matthew 13, I'm going to read you Luke 9, 23. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for me will save him. How big would our church be if Jesus were here preaching and he's an obscure first century Jewish rabbi, right? That'd weird you out to start with. He'd have side locks. He'd be wearing something that looks more like a gown to you. I mean, I know it's a surprise to American Christians, but Jesus never wore a business suit. Mm -hmm. You would think a tie was something to hang yourself with. So the first century Jewish rabbi is here. He's obscure. You're kind of trying to figure it out because you've heard he does miracles. You've heard he does amazing things. And he says, look, so glad y'all all showed up. If you want to continue to follow me, I'd like you to drag an electric chair with you everywhere you go. Uh, you're going to need to deny yourself and be willing to put yourself in that chair at any moment. How big do you think that crowd is? But that is the modern-day equivalent of what he said. Have you ever thought to yourself, if I had just been there, if I had seen what they saw, if I was there when, when the heavens opened and God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, I would have responded. Really? Because we got the Holy Ghost presence in our midst. Many of you are filled with his presence to the point where gifting and all kinds of things manifest. We don't always respond to his request now. What if he told you to drag an electric chair with you? Well, you might stop and go, well, he didn't really mean that, did he? He meant I needed to be willing to drag an electric chair, but it's just a fair point. These people didn't actually go build crosses and drag them. Maybe he just meant they needed to be willing to. Of course, how would you ever know if you were willing to if you didn't? You see, we rationalize out our obedience all of the time because we said the Lord just wants us willing to do that. But then the better question is, have you ever? It's easy to say you would do a thing until you've done it. Oh, I'd clean toilets for the Lord. I'd do anything. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God. Well, good. Let's start. Here's a mop and plunger. Now what's our attitude like? suffering for Jesus. Well, let's do it for 10 or 15 years and then talk. People do it every day. It's somebody's job. Why are we too good for it? See, I think that there's an entitlement feeling that is not just a Democrat problem. I mean, I think it's an American problem. I think we believe we're the best Christians in the world because we know the most and wear the nicest clothes. But then you really need to ask, do we know the most? How many of us have shared in the fellowship of his suffering, as Paul said? Well, you know, Pastor, this is not very uplifting. Let me get to the uplifting part. Y'all in Matthew 13? Because God forbid I bring you in here and serve you only peppers and no icing, right? Do you think these people followed him because they were some kind of, uh, I don't mean this in the sexual sense, but some kind of strange sadomasochist? Do you think they, they, oh, yes, hurt ourselves, of course. Offend our family, y'all sign me up. 
although I've met some families that <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Why do you think they followed him? I think Matthew 13 gives us the answer. They had a revelation. There was something born on the inside of them that nobody could take away. There was something that had begun to consume them like sprinkling leaven inside a dough and it began to permeate the whole thing until they were so filled with a concept, so filled with a dream and an idea called the kingdom of God that how could they not? Check out how this works. Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. Then in his joy, say that with me, in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought the field. Oh, what a cute little story. <laughs> it's not been a story to centuries of Christians. It's been the story of their lives. Let's imagine something, right? There's a field over here. Y'all all seen it, huh? Sometimes we got some drug deals going on out there. Sometimes people ride horses through. It's the coolest little mixture. I mean, it's a milieu of all kind of activity. In the back, there's donkeys and sheep, you know? What if you were walking through there? I don't know, going to the junkyard back there. You know, hey, I think I've seen y'all's ministry. Where is it? Well, you go to the junkyard and we're right by it. <laughs> I used to love when we were in a house. And so, somebody said, what, where are you the pastor of? I said, well, it's life-changing ministries and fellowship. I think I've seen that. <laughs> oh, I bet you hadn't. <laughs> How big are y'all? About two cars. That's what our garage was before we were. What if you're walking across that field out there? And you look down and you saw a box kind of scraped the dirt away from the box began to dig and you were shocked because when you pulled it back and looked there was a vault full of gold in there right you stuck your head in you looked around and said there are millions and millions of dollars in here then as you looked up you saw by the road there's a for sale sign now I don't know exactly how much money it would be for Charlie it would be one amount for Nolan, it'd be another. For Patricia, another. But whatever the amount was, it was all you had. I don't mean just all you had in your change jar. I mean if you sold, if you worked, if you did everything that you possibly could do, it'd be all you were ever capable of raising, even with a cosigner. What would your friends say to you? Ryan, you sold your car. Man, how are you going to get to work? Well, I didn't tell you. I quit my job, too. Well, you got the other car, right? The one Allison drives? Nope, sold that one. Dude, have you lost your mind? What are you going to do with that dirt that is out there? I mean, do you know that people do drug deals out there? You, you, I saw a guy ride a, a mule through there one time. You, you lost your mind. Well, you hadn't heard the best part yet. I sold my house. Where are you going to live? Where are you going to drive? Where are you going to work? Right, have you thought about What are you going to eat? These are all reasonable questions, aren't they? But Ryan knows something you don't know. He knows that what's buried in that field so far surpasses everything that he has, it's not worth comparing to it. If he really believed that there was millions of dollars in that vault, what wouldn't he sell to go obtain the field? Jesus said that's what the kingdom is like. Something has become so valuable to you. Nothing compares to it. Now we sing those songs, friends, but we don't live those lives. Which means, truthfully, we gather in the name of the Lord and sing lies to him, fairy tales. But when that becomes reality for us, the kingdom of God is born in our lives, isn't it? I want you to think about this. How could he afford to give up all of those things, right? I mean, he's got to eat. He's got to have a house. He's got to have a way to get to work. He's got children. It's not very responsible of him. But he's sitting there thinking, if you knew what I knew, how could you afford not to? Because you're going to keep your job. You're going to keep your car. You're going to keep your comfortable little life. 
you're not going to have what I have. This is what Christians around the world have found out. They're beaten by their governments. They go about hungry and destitute like aliens traveling through. And the world's not quite worthy of them. But the kingdom of God is something that has been born inside of you. That's what Christianity is. Isn't that a little different picture than your best life now? All difference to whoever wrote that. I didn't even read it. The title was enough for me. I'm trying to tell you that what the world sees and calls Christianity in its Roman institution and its Protestant organizations doesn't look like that. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we're some esoteric little group that is better than anybody else. In fact, I'm telling you plainly, I don't and you don't measure up to that. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying it'll only be by the power of God that we can consider these things and strive for them. But Christians have been doing it for centuries. How would you feel if you knew Matthew Hero was about to be killed for the gospel? Would you beg him not to go? Paul's friends begged him not to go. But what would you do when he could not be dissuaded because he knew what was in the field? See, friends, this is when Christianity becomes real. I want to ask you another question just on the topic of holiness. What are we trading that for? What? What have we traded the all-surpassing glory and power of God for? Entertainment? Lust? Comfort? Pain? God never told you that you had to drive a Volkswagen. That's what Billy Graham said. He never told you you needed to wear burlap sacks or go hit yourself with whips like some of the monks did in the medieval ages. He never said any of those things. He simply says to you, you must do whatever I tell you to do. And we say, oh, I will. But then cannot point to a single thing he's told us to do in a year's time. You think maybe we're asleep? I have one message for our church. It's time for us to wake up. God's got work for us to do. And to the extent that this is not the occupation of the leadership, but is the obsession of the congregation, the community, we really can shake the world for Jesus. I'm looking around me and the great men of God that I have read about are not living today. The Leonard Ravenhills are gone. The David Wilkerson's, they're gone. John G. Lake, gone. The Apostle of Faith, gone. Smith Wigglesworth. Can it take it? Gone. D.L. Moody, gone. But I believe my body is every bit as big as theirs was. The question is, will I measure up to what it says I am or not? How about you? God's generals, where are they? They better be coming from this room or we have a world without hope. They better be coming from little churches just like this all over the world. I don't want the Indian Christians as much as I love them to pass us by. They already have. I don't want them to keep passing this by. I don't want our friends in China. I, I don't want to be embarrassed on that day that we had everything and did nothing with it. I want to rise to the occasion. I don't know what that looks like for your life, but I can tell you it's uncomfortable. I can tell you it's the kind of thing you wrestle with to the point that the Bible says we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I can tell you we will probably never have a giant crowd preaching messages like this. And that's okay with me. I have learned that five loaves and two fishes is always enough. Always. If I were going to change Mozambique, I would not have sent a five-foot-two woman, no blonde-headed, hundred-pound thing, to Mozambique. But she was obedient, and God did. And Heidi and Roland Baker have changed the face of Mozambique. What could God do with you? It's time, church. 
We began this work in April of 2002. By May of 2003, we had already had wide-scale desertion. Everybody that came to help us start it said it wouldn't work, and they left. It was at that point that God spoke to me, December of 2003. He said, enclose your garage and put 50 chairs in it. I thought, 50 chairs? I've got 12 right now, and a lot of them are empty. Friends, family, all of those families. I began reading about Joseph and what Joseph went through for the call of God that was on his life. They might have had a lot of days he didn't know if it was worth it, but on his last day it certainly was. Huh? I believe God will raise up from this group and the people's lives that you touch people who change the world. And it hinges just on one principle. Either his word is optional or it's not. Either obedience is optional or it's not. I'm going to preach my heart out Sunday. I don't know what I'm preaching anymore. I did now. This is no notes. You're getting the unfiltered version of what God is dealing with me. I personally think that's a lot better than making it sound prettier than it should be. But the big question is not what Eric preach, what will he preach on Sunday? Or if I bring a guest, will somebody prophesy in tongues? Or somebody run around the building? <laughs> The big question is, what is the Spirit of God saying to you? And of all the answers you could come up with, I want to tell you, it is not nothing. Deny it. Nothing. It's not nothing. If wind is sitting still, is it wind? In Greek, the Spirit... It's called pneumos. It's where you get the term pneumatic. drives tools. Pneumos. It cannot be pneumos if it's sitting still. In Hebrew, it is ruach. Ruach means both spirit and wind. Because if it's sitting still, it cannot by definition be wind. It is not nothing. Ephesians 2 has been a hallmark scripture in my life. He saved us in order to do the good works God prepared in advance for us to do. What are they? What are they? And it's not something a long ways off in the future. He has something for you to do today or you would not be alive today. And he certainly wouldn't have drug you in this crazy storefront church. Now, I'm going to tell you real quick. Okay, We're kind of on a journey together. I don't have all of the answers. I've got more questions. I'm reading people who are in the same boat I am. I'm really disappointed and encouraged all at the same time. There's a man named David Platt who's Baptist. I, I didn't think that it was possible Baptist talk like this. But everything that God has been sharing with me and our ministry has been growing to, he's been sharing with this guy. And I'm encouraged to see these parallel tracks of churches in different places. I want to tell you, I don't know what it's going to look like in the end, but this is what we're going to preach and this is what we're going to do. And I want to tell you, it's like getting on a flight and there's seats for you and there's an aisle and there's attendance. And that flight is going somewhere. You don't get up halfway in, in the middle and decide, you know, I'd like to go somewhere else. Either... God has called you to this flight and its destination or there's lots of other flights to get on. And that's okay. Won't think less of you. I mean, if you run to the Mormon church or something, I'll, I'll think less of you. I'll go <laughs> but if you can sincerely say, I understand the message, it's true, I love it, and yet God is calling me to a different focus, then you should not be here. And I'll accept that. Love you, bless you. I'll help you get wherever you're going. But if I see you here on Sunday, I'm going to assume you have answered to a reckless abandonment of yourself and a radical obedience to the gospel. And then we're going to move forward expecting that when the Lord says you do, we don't ask how high, we don't ask how far, we just do. Amen? Amen. Why don't you all stand your feet? We'll pray.
The other thing that has been overwhelming my senses lately, and maybe it's because my daddy died, or maybe it's uh, the Lord used that because he wanted to show me something else too. You only have so many days you can work. And the truth is we've taken off too many already. Fair enough. I spent a lot of time not even know I was supposed to be employed by the king. Spent a lot of time employed from him, but kind of experiencing time theft. Taking four-hour lunches, coming in two hours late, leaving an hour early. Because I, I, like every other American Christian, was obsessed with comfort. What happens if we become obsessed with laying hold of the kingdom of God? I didn't even get to the rich young man that Jesus looked at and loved. He said, one thing you lack, go sell it all. Give it to the poor and you will have treasure in the kingdom of God. I didn't even get to that passage tonight. I may preach on that Sunday. I don't know yet. Radical obedience will bring a supernatural element to your life that few of us have ever known. I want to tell you, I mentioned the trailer earlier, right? Y'all remember that? That's kind of a shameful moment in our history. When the presence of God fell on the church, repentance began to happen. Pastor, I'm sorry, I think I did that to your trailer. To which I want to say, you think? <laughs> you, you think you did? But the young man was doing his best to get right with God. Don't let your moments pass. You might not get them back. Don't let them pass. Because that young man is going to leave here knowing his father and the kingdom, the heavenly father, is promised. And friends, that's a priceless thing. To know that God is proud of you. Join hands with the people around you. We'll pray for the children overtaken.